When you picture the typical serial killer, you probably see the faces of Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, etc. And women are most always the targets of these killers. But today, we're going to be examining one of those rare cases where the woman is the perpetrator. This particular serial killer is an average-looking elderly woman. She looks like she would bake you some cookies and tell you to come visit more often after giving you a warm hug. But looks can be deceiving. Under this grandmother's large framed glasses are beady little eyes that have witnessed some twisted shit. She didn't use those hands to knit fuzzy sweaters or try her luck at some bingo. She used them to get exactly what she wanted at whatever cost. And that cost was the lives of at least nine people living under her roof in her care. This is the story of Dorothea's death house. In 1981, 61-year-old Ruth Monroe and her husband saw an older woman drinking alone at the Round Corner Tavern. Being the kind souls that they were, they invited the woman over to their table. What Ruth didn't know was that the person who dragged up that bar stool and plopped down in it was a real-life succubus and grim reaper, Dorothea Montalvo Puente. Ruth was unemployed after leaving the pharmacy and actively looking for work. The entrepreneur gears in Dorothea's head started to turn, and she let Ruth in on her business plans. She told her that the tavern was going to lease out the restaurant portion, and she wanted Ruth to be her partner. Dorothea would do the cooking, and Ruth would be the driver handling kitchen supplies and transporting everything they need, since she had a car. The two shook hands, and Ruth passed along a wad of cash that was her stake in the business. Ruth was enthusiastic to get back on her feet with her own business, but Dorothea had other plans. As time went by, according to Dorothea, the restaurant was failing, and Ruth needed to give her more money to keep it afloat. She sucked thousands of dollars from Ruth, who had a lot more than a failing business on her plate. At the beginning of 1982, Ruth's husband was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he had to remain in the hospital for 24-7 care. Dorothea saw her business partner knocked down and in need of some help. These were Dorothea's favorite kind of people, because they were easier to steal from. So she reached out and offered Ruth a place to stay. Ruth's son moved her furniture into 1426 F Street on April 11, 1982. Two weeks after moving in, Ruth's health steadily began to decline. Her children were concerned, and on top of that, their mother had started drinking alcohol, something she had never done. Ruth told her children it was fine. Dorothea had given it to her to calm her nerves. Dorothea reassured her children that she was a nurse. She knew how to take care of the sick. But on April 28th, Ruth's kids received a call from Dorothea. Their mother had died in her bed. An autopsy showed that Ruth had overdosed on codeine and Tylenol. The coroner listed her death as an undetermined overdose, meaning they didn't know if Ruth intentionally or unintentionally overdosed. When questioned by police, though, Dorothea had a whole theory. She told them that Ruth had been depressed because her husband was terminally ill, inferring that Ruth had taken her own life. Police took her word and didn't investigate any further. Ruth's family was left confused and suspicious. Their mother would never take her own life, 
and she had worked at a pharmacy, she would never accidentally overdose. On top of that, Dorothea had wiped Ruth's bank accounts clean and pawned her precious jewelry. In her defense, she told the family that Ruth had owed her a lot of money from their failing business. The very next month, police were at Dorothea's doorstep, placing her under arrest, but it wasn't for murder. In her purse, they found two tickets to Mexico. On May 16th, just two weeks after Ruth Monroe's death, Dorothea made a special drink for her neighbor. The 49-year-old woman told police she took just two sips because the taste was foul. The woman walked to a convenience store and bought a beer, and after that, she doesn't remember anything. She blacked out and woke up hours later to discover that her checkbook, credit cards, and keys were all missing. In another incident, Dorothea posed as a member of the Medical Association to access the home of an 82-year-old woman, whom she told to lie down in her bed and close her eyes. After Dorothea failed to return to the bedroom, the woman walked out to find that Dorothea had fled with her diamond ring and a hundred sleeping pills. Dorothea worked as a night nurse for an 83-year-old woman, from which she stole checks and other valuable items. None of these events resulted in her arrest, however, until she drugged 74-year-old Malcolm McKenzie in January that year. She met Malcolm at a local bar where she spiked two of his drinks and asked to see his apartment. Once there, Malcolm became temporarily paralyzed, but was alert enough to see and hear Dorothea. He watched her pack up his valuables into a suitcase and slip off his diamond pinky ring as she walked out the door. The district attorney presiding over the case described the 53-year-old woman as, quote, your quintessential granny. She looked like the most mild, pleasant-appearing grandmother that you could possibly think of, but I wouldn't sit down and have a drink with her. In August of that year, Dorothea was sentenced to five years imprisonment for grand theft, forgery, and administering stupefying drugs. Ruth's children found out about Dorothea's charges while reading the newspaper about her sentence. They contacted law enforcement and told them everything they knew about their mother's suspicious death. They knew in their hearts that something was very wrong. But police either didn't have enough evidence or didn't care to pursue it. Dorothea's death house was on pause for now, but she would make sure it could quickly resume once she was out. During her time in prison, Dorothea became pen pals with an Oregon man, 77-year-old Everson Gilmouth. Everson was known to exchange letters with women in prison, and it's presumed that they were connected by another inmate. Everson was seeking a companion after the death of his wife, while Dorothea was seeking a steady income on his social security. In August of 1985, Everson left town to pick up what he presumed was his future bride from prison. After serving just three years, Dorothea was back at home on F Street in Sacramento. By her urging, Everson opened up a joint bank account with Dorothea and started depositing checks monthly of roughly $500. This relationship would only last a couple months, though, because Dorothea did the math and figured out if Everson was taken out of the equation, all that money would go to her. In October of 1985, Everson's sister, Reba, told police that something was very wrong. 
She hadn't heard from her brother in weeks. Her last contact with him was in September, and this is when Everson informed her that Dorothea had served time for drugging and robbing the elderly. Concerned about Dorothea's history, Reba sent police down to 1426 F Street to conduct a welfare check. The police told her that they didn't see anything suspicious or out of the ordinary, and that the landlord was just a harmless-looking older woman. Dorothea didn't like cops snooping around, so she attempted to cover her tracks. She sent letters to Reba and called her multiple times, saying Everson was fine, he just couldn't come to the phone right now, and he didn't appreciate Reba bringing cops. In one letter Reba received, Dorothea posed as a woman named Irene, writing that she and Everson were married, residing at Dorothea's home. Reba's suspicions grew further. Why would her brother say he was going to marry Dorothea, then suddenly marry another woman, all under one roof in the span of months? It didn't make sense. Reba went on to contact Social Security, the media, and even the Bureau of Vital Records to see if her brother was even alive. But her concerns were brushed off, and Reba would be left in the dark for years. A month after Reba called police, Dorothea hired a new handyman that would unknowingly help her dispose of her second victim. For her, he installed wood paneling and built a wooden box for Dorothea to store books and other miscellaneous junk. The box was six feet tall, three feet wide, and two feet deep, eerily resembling a makeshift coffin, because that's exactly what it was. Dorothea supposedly put Everson's body in there herself and nailed it shut. She then got the handyman to load the heavy box and drive her out to a storage unit. But on the way, she changed her mind and asked him to stop alongside the highway where he helped her dump the mysterious box on a riverbank. Weeks later, on New Year's Day, 1986, a man fishing on the Sacramento River found the box, which had apparently come open. Inside, a decomposed body lied wrapped in layers of bedsheets and plastic. As a futile attempt to mask the smell of death, mothballs and deodorizer were tucked inside as well. Officials weren't able to determine a cause of death for Everson, nor were they able to identify his body for years to come. Dorothea gained a new confidence after successfully getting away with another murder and continued to cash out Everson's security checks. She learned after her last stint in prison that simply knocking her victims unconscious and stealing from them wouldn't suffice. She had to make sure that they couldn't wake up and tell police. She had to make sure that they would never wake up again. She was her own hitwoman for hire, and with more hits came more opportunities for passive income flow straight into her pockets. Dorothea preyed on the most vulnerable people all cloaked as a heroic caregiver. She housed addicts, the disabled, and anyone who needed support for what they thought was small fees in return. Social workers started sending their clients to Dorothea's boarding home despite her record of taking advantage of dependent people. Got a tough client that nobody wants to house? Dump them at Dorothea's death house today, and you might not see their face ever again. 
The social worker most dependent on Dorothea was Peggy Nickerson, who in 1986 placed 19 people in Dorothea's hands. She would eventually be sued by three of the victim's families and lose her job. Dorothea didn't have a license for her boarding house, so Peggy helped her lie to officials, stating that people only stayed for days at a time. Therefore, it didn't qualify as a boarding house and didn't require a license. She also ignored warnings from other social workers about Dorothea's criminal history and thought nothing of some of her clients disappearing because that wasn't an uncommon occurrence. Dorothea found all the faults in the system and managed to slip through the cracks. All of her tenants were receiving social security or disability checks, and if they weren't, Dorothea made sure to sign them up. She would then designate herself as a third-party payee on their checks. These applications to the social security office were always approved because background checks weren't conducted and she didn't write down that she was a convicted felon. Her probation officers also didn't know that she was acting as a payee for her tenants. Legally, she wasn't allowed to be working with the elderly and disabled or touching any government checks made out to other people. But Dorothea Puente did both and was able to deceive the probation officer that visited her monthly, stating that her sole income was from her own social security and ironing people's laundry. Starting at her release from prison in 1985, Dorothea housed around 40 different people over the course of three years. Fifteen of those tenants disappeared. Before we go deeper into the events leading up to her arrest, let's dissect Granny Dorothea's life before she became a serial killer. She was born as Dorothea Helen Gray, on January 9, 1929, in Redlands, California. Her father, Jesse, had been in and out of various veterans' hospitals for seven years at this point, after finally breaking down to the effects of tuberculosis. Despite her husband's bedridden illness, Trudy managed to pop out seven children. Dorothea was the sixth. Although there's been some speculation that Dorothea was not actually Jesse's child in the first place. Jesse's veteran compensation checks were barely enough to feed the large family, and it didn't help that Trudy was an alcoholic that was in and out of jail. The well being of the Gray children fell on their own shoulders, and mainly they just had to rely on each other. When Dorothea was eight, her father succumbed to his chronic illness, and died at the age of 42. Some of the great children were placed in the care of relatives, and the youngest three, including Dorothea, were sent to an orphanage after officials deemed Trudy an unfit mother. This was apparently a relief to Trudy, because shortly after, she moved into a new lover's home in Los Angeles. Two years after losing her father, Dorothea's mother died in a motorcycle accident in December of 1938, and two years after that, she would lose her oldest sister to the same fate. From here, as Dorothea moved through different homes, towns, and schools, she also shifted through different identities and developed a compulsion to lie. At 16 in 1945, she dropped out of high school and ran away to Olympia, Washington. There, 
She told people her name was Sherry. She supported herself through sex work until a man named Fred, seven years her senior, swept her off her feet and married her in Reno the same year. Fred believed that Dorothea was Sherry, a 30-year-old widow. And to friends and strangers, she was Fred's nurse in the war in the Philippines. Later, Fred would recall, quote, she could pass for anyone she wanted to be the way she acted. I don't know where she'd come up with this shit. Out of the clear blue sky. By August of 1947, the 18-year-old had given birth to two daughters. However, Dorothea wasn't interested in motherhood or any form of stability. It wasn't familiar to her. So she took off to Los Angeles. She returned weeks later and told Fred that she was pregnant. Whether it was actually Fred's child, that's up in the air. After a miscarriage, Fred decided it was his turn to leave. His mother raised one of their daughters, and the other girl was adopted by another family. Dorothea Gray was alone again, and sought comfort in what she'd known her whole life. Chaos and instability. Her first arrest came in 1948, after she was caught buying a hat, shoes, purse, and pantyhose with a forged check. She served four months in jail and received three years probation as a first-time offender. She ghosted her probation officer and skipped town six months after her release. Four years later, Dorothea married Axel Johansson in San Francisco. The 23-year-old's identity at this point was Taya Nayarda, a Muslim woman of Egyptian and Israeli descent. While Axel was out at sea for months at a time, Dorothea gambled away his money and had countless strange men in and out of their home. The neighbors complained to Axel that taxis dropped off a new one every hour. So when Axel brought this up, Dorothea decided to move her business elsewhere, to a nearby office space she had rented out. Police caught wind of it in the spring of 1960, and the 31-year-old was arrested for residing in a house of ill fame. She spent 30 days in jail and received five years of probation. It took me a while to find an article about this arrest because I was searching Dorothea Johansson. When I changed her name to Taya Johansson, lo and behold, an article finally popped up. It's dated as April 26, 1960 and in part reads, quote, Taya Johansson and Bonnie LaCosta arrested late yesterday are accused by sheriff's investigators of operating a house of ill fame under the guise of a bookkeeping service in an office on Fulton Avenue. Sergeants said that they received a tip, something other than bookkeeping seemed to be going on in office number two. After watching the place for three days, they rented a truck and trailer yesterday afternoon and telephoned for an appointment. They dressed in truck worker clothing and dusted their hands and money with powder visible under ultraviolet light, then drove to the address. They said Miss Johansson, aka Dorothea, was the spokeswoman as they discussed prices for acts of prostitution. Unsettling for a price of $15 for both men, Lacey went into a room by the main office where she was arrested as she began to undress. The owner of the building was unaware of such activity. Although he became skeptical when people in nearby offices noticed that none of the men visiting the bookkeeping service had any books. 
A year later, Axel had her committed to a hospital for psychiatric help, where she told everyone she spoke five different languages. Doctors wrote that she was a pathological liar, infantile, and suffered from an unstable personality. She was also diagnosed with schizophrenia. She and Axel were separated after this, although they wouldn't legally divorce until 1966. After Dorothea's release from the hospital, she took on the personality of a warm, church-going woman, helping those in need. She changed names and addresses, but stuck around Sacramento from there on out. To everyone around her, Dorothea was a kind and compassionate caregiver. She housed young girls, single mothers, and victims of domestic abuse. Was Dorothea finally turning a new leaf? You already know the answer to that. In 1968, the 39-year-old married husband number three, Roberto Puente. He was 16 years her junior, and many believed Roberto was actually a gigolo, in it for the U.S. citizenship. Some neighbors actually called him Mr. Gigolo, which, by definition, is a young man financially supported by an older woman to be her escort or lover. This love affair didn't last long, and the couple separated after 16 months, in July of 1969. Dorothea wanted to keep their two-story home and fairly new car, so whether it was true or not, she wrote on the divorce papers that Roberto was extremely cruel and had, quote, wrongfully inflicted grievous mental and physical suffering. Roberto refused to sign the papers and went back to Mexico, only to return five years later and attempt to rekindle their romance. The divorce had been finalized for a year at this time, and things weren't looking much better from there, because the couple continued to have disputes. Dorothea tried to kick Roberto out, and after he refused to pay rent or leave, she filed a restraining order. Despite their rocky relationship, Dorothea and Roberto kept in touch, and she would continue to use his last name through another marriage, and up until her death. Dorothea Puente continued on her charitable, philanthropic path, and eventually started renting out a three-story mansion to house her dependents. She furnished the home from donations to her local church and held recurring AA meetings in the parlor. Without a doubt, for a while Dorothea greatly helped members of the local Mexican-American community through fundraisers, donations, programs, and scholarships. However, the compulsive lying never ceased. Some people thought she was being taken advantage of, but Dorothea would assure them that she was a wealthy woman, with two other houses in Mexico and Spain. She even wrote up a will, in which dozens of children and a Catholic school were the beneficiaries. These hefty assets she was so proud to pass on, though, she never actually owned. In August of 1978, Dorothea finalized her fourth marriage to one of her own tenants, Pedro Montalvo. Pedro caught on to Dorothea's tall tales rather quickly. He would say, quote, She was always lying. She never told the truth. She told me she was a doctor. Lies. She told me she owned property in Mexico. Lies. She told me she was Mexican, but she doesn't speak Spanish. This would be her shortest marriage, which legally lasted a few months, but Pedro walked out after just a week. 
Dorothea Montalvo Puente surely wasn't making enough money from housing a few people, so she had to develop some side hustles. She would sometimes cram 30 tenants into the three-story home at one time. This meant more rent was being paid and more checks in the mail at the house, from which she would sign over to herself and deposit in her bank. There were also rumors of her selling medical treatments and injections. Her lies had established herself as an unlicensed doctor, and she took full advantage of her tenants' prescribed medications and treatments. This lie became so widely believed, a local newspaper called her a doctor when it announced those who donated to members running for city council. Dorothea had made the biggest donation to one man running, at $2,300. Other rumors suggest that Dorothea also may have been using the basement to conceal illegal immigrants from officials. Whenever there was a chance to make a quick buck, she would probably go along with it. I wouldn't put anything past Dorothea Puente. However, at the end of 1978, Dorothea's check-grabbing scheme would come to an end. She was arrested and charged for illegally cashing 34 federal checks. Her punishment was light. Despite having previous arrests in 1948 and 1960, the judge gave her five years of probation and ordered her to pay $4,000 in restitution. When Pedro asked his ex-wife why she was arrested, she said, quote, I did it because I wanted to be somebody. He asked why she had to steal to be somebody, to which Dorothea responded, quote, The way that I steal, I give to others. That's strange. I don't remember Robin Hood stealing from the disabled and elderly, then putting the money in his own pockets. At this point in Dorothea's timeline, she's been married four times, arrested three, and killed no one that we know of. For four years, Dorothea stays out of jail and out of the papers, until her fourth arrest in 1982. The mansion was long gone by this point, and after serving three years in jail, she returned to a rented upstairs room at 1426 F Street. And when the owner moved out, Dorothea took over. This house is what would ultimately become an infamous crime scene. And now that we've circled back, we can pick up where we left off. By 1986, Dorothea had killed 61-year-old Ruth Monroe, 77-year-old Everson Gilmouth, and gotten away with it. In this next part, we're going to look at a bread trail of clues that state officials ignored or missed that allowed Dorothea to kill at least seven more of her tenants at least the ones we haven't talked about yet. And the first record comes in 1987. In May of 1987, 58-year-old Eugene Gamel received child molestation charges. He'd been a tenant of Dorothea's for two years, but that was about to change. Two months later, in July of that year, he was found dead of an apparent overdose. Eugene was an alcoholic, but on this occasion, he apparently took it too far by mixing alcohol with a number of antidepressants. This was the second overdose death at Dorothea's home, and again, police considered it a suicide. And this is the last time you'll hear about Eugene, because even after Dorothea's caught, they remained satisfied with his death. 
despite the fact that Dorothea was cashing his government checks for a year after his death. I guess they already had a lot on their plate and didn't care to look further into the death of a suspected child molester. In a letter dated November 29, 1987, Brenda Trujillo wrote to the Social Security Office in Sacramento. She accused Dorothea of stealing her checks, which had amounted to $3,500. She never received a response. Brenda met Dorothea in 1982. At one point, they had shared a cell together. Upon her release, Dorothea opened her home and signed Brenda up for Social Security. But before the first check ever arrived, Brenda claimed that she was drugged. Dorothea then called her parole agent, and he found, of course, that Brenda had violated her parole by ingesting drugs. She tried to explain to the officer, but he didn't believe her, and she was sent right back to jail. Dr. Curiel, a staff psychologist for the Department of Corrections Outpatient Clinic, did believe Brenda. Her history with Dorothea goes back as far as the fall of 1985, when she evaluated her mental state. Dr. Curiel wrote that Dorothea's living environment and employment should be closely monitored. In the fall of 1987, after communicating with Brenda, she issued warnings to the following organizations, the Social Security Administration, the Federal Probation Office, Sacramento Police, Sacramento Valley Communication Correction Services, and her own department, state parole authorities. All of these warnings were ignored. They were a scream into the void. In April of 1988, Brenda was free on parole again, but had another run-in with the law, this time for murder. Those charges were eventually dismissed, but when she sat down with the detective, she spoke of some murders that she did have some information about. In the report, the officer wrote Brenda had told him that, quote, Dorothea Puente had bodies, or made oblique references to bodies, implying some illegal action regarding deaths had occurred at Puente's house. The investigator brushed it off, believing that Brenda was just trying to throw him off and get out of trouble. Will McIntyre lived next door to Dorothea's death house, and he, along with many other neighbors, smelled it. The smell was so awful, in fact, Will had to turn off his air conditioner because, quote, it would suck the smell in and you would have to go outside to get away from it. In late May of 1988, neighbors repeatedly complained to the Sacramento County Health Department. They finally sent an inspector on June 1st. But the official never saw nor smelled anything amiss, apparently because Dorothea wasn't issued a violation. Although police would take the credit for taking down the granny serial killer, the real credit belongs to one average woman that went above and beyond when her client went missing. Judy Moyes filed a missing person report on November 7th for 51-year-old Alvaro Montoya, known to everyone as Bert. They introduced Bert to the boarding house in February of that year, they let Dorothea in on his conditions, stating, quote, He hears voices. He says there are spirits talking to him. And he answers them and gestures to them. But usually he's very quiet and very sweet. 
Physically, he's fine, except for a really bad case of psoriasis that he's had for years. Dorothea added comfort with her lies, stating that she could clear it up for him. She'd been an RN in World War II, and was known to some in the Hispanic community as the doctor. Bert had been put through the ringer years prior by a mental hospital in New Orleans. He had a severe mental disability, and his mother thought placing him there would do him well. However, there is where Bert received shock treatments, and upon his release, he ran away to Sacramento. After years of living in a shelter for recovering addicts, Bert finally had a room of his own. Within two weeks of moving into the boarding house, Dorothea had healed his chronic psoriasis. But that was just the beginning. Every time Judy visited her client, he looked better and better. Dorothea had purchased Bert new clothes, new shoes, and instilled better hygiene habits. He still often mumbled, but his pronunciation and desire to speak improved drastically. Dorothea treated Bert better than any other tenant she ever had. She gave him extra spending money, cooked him more meals, and even took him in months before his checks started rolling in. But if Bert was going to stay, those checks had to be rolling in. So two months after moving in, Dorothea brought Bert to the Social Security office and filled out a form to become his official payee. In a blank, questioning her relationship to Bert, she wrote, Cousin. By June, monthly checks of $637 were being sent to 1426 F Street. Around this time, Beth and her co-worker Judy came down to check on their client once again. To Dorothea, this was an opportunity to plant the first seed in her long haul of a plan. She told the caseworkers that she had relatives in Mexico and planned on taking all her tenants with her on the next trip. Beth and Judy were concerned about Bert taking this trip, but quickly changed the subject, thinking the plans would never actually go through. Unlike Bert, many of the people passing through Dorothea's death house didn't have people checking in on them weekly, monthly, or even at all. Ben Fink was one of those people. He moved in a month after Bert into one of those tiny little rooms. When a benefit check came in, after getting his cut from Bertha, he'd purge all his money on alcohol as soon as it hit his pocket. This wasn't going to last, though, because Dorothea kept a tight house, and if someone wasn't following her rules, she took this as an excuse to do away with him. After just a couple months of boarding on F Street, Ben Fink was about to be another name on her list of murders. In the morning, after one of his ritual night binges, Dorothea bumped into John Sharp, another tenant. She told John that Ben needed to sober up, so she was going to take him upstairs and make him, quote, feel better. After that announcement, John never heard or saw Ben Fink again. Four days after this, John caught a whiff of a terrifying odor coming from the back spare bedroom. He'd worked in a mortuary before, so when the smell hit his nostrils, immediately he knew it was the smell of death. As the scent filled the air, Dorothea couldn't help but comment on it herself. She told John the sewers had backed up and soaked into the carpet. After attempting to shampoo the carpet a dozen times, she contracted some workers to tear it out completely 
and install a new one. On the way to buy a new carpet, she told the cab driver she was buying it for a room that, quote, had a curse. John didn't want to believe that his landlady had killed Ben Fink. He thought he saw him walking down the street one day and told Dorothea about it. Her response was, quote, no, that can't be. Ben has gone up north. Judy and Beth's suspicions about Dorothea Puente began when they were approached by two other social workers that had managed to connect the dots. Dorothea Puente is Dorothea Johansson, the same woman that had a record of drugging the vulnerable, stealing, and cashing other people's checks. They had a hard time believing it. The picture they saw looked nothing like Dorothea, who was now gray-haired, lighter, and missing all her teeth. It also didn't sound like the woman they knew, who had transformed Bert's life for the better in such a short amount of time. Judy decided to dispel the accusations one day in the parlor room on F Street. While chatting, she told Dorothea that despite her last name, she didn't appear Mexican at all. Quote, what was your name before it was Puente? Dorothea said back, Montalvo. Judy knew that that was another previous husband's name and persisted. Quote, I mean, what was your name before you were married? It wasn't the truth, but Dorothea gave her the answer she was looking for, Johansson. If she had said her maiden name, Gray, Judy could have brushed off the other social workers' concerns, but Dorothea's response had managed to send a chill down her spine. It confirmed the criminal allegations. Judy had put her client in the house of a dangerous woman, and it was only a matter of time before she would regret it. By mid-June of 1988, everyone who came to visit Bert regularly had stopped. Beth and Judy tended to other clients, and the nurses that saw him for tuberculosis checkups said that they were no longer needed. The nurses said they'd check on him again in a year. The only person Bert would regularly see was his friend Bill. On July 30th, he confided in Bill that he didn't want to stay with Dorothea any longer. Bill was set on taking Bert back to the detox center, if that's what he really wanted. So he drove them to Dorothea's house to gather his things. But Dorothea put her foot down and manipulated Bert into staying. On top of this, Bill would rather his friend sleep in a comfortable bed and not a mat on the cold cement floor. August 11th was the last time Bill saw his friend alive. Bert made him drop him off blocks away from Dorothea's home, insinuating that she didn't like them hanging out. Dorothea didn't like her tenants having friends, because if they did, those friends would come looking. Two months later, Judy Moyce visited Bill at the detox center. At her urging, Bill called up Dorothea to check up on Bert. After the call, he relayed to Judy what he'd been told. Bert was in Mexico, staying with Dorothea's brother-in-law at a nice home in the country. Bert had enjoyed it so much, he decided to stay. That weekend, Judy placed a call to the woman herself to get a first-hand account. She asked how Bert was doing, to which Dorothea replied, quote, Oh, he's in Mexico. They just adore him so much. He's been calling me three times a week just to talk about what they've been doing. Judy voiced her concerns, and she was quickly reassured that he'd be returning next week. A week flew by, and Judy called again. Where's Bert? Dorothea was casual. Quote, oh, there was a fiesta he wanted to stay for. 
Again, she promised he'd be back within a week, and she'd call Judy as soon as he was back. The call never came. Judy finally made a demand. Bert needed to be back at the boarding house by November 1st. Dorothea promised he would. On that day, Judy and Beth made their way to 1426 F Street, ready to welcome Bert back home from Mexico. But he wasn't there. Dorothea spouted a web of lies, whatever to get them off the porch. She told them she would fly to Mexico herself, just to pick him up. They were still holding out hope that Dorothea was telling the truth, and told her they'd return on November 7th, and Bert better be there, they said. As Judy sat in her office on the morning of the 7th, a phone call came in. A man stated, quote, Hello, this is Mitchell Abregon. I mean, Miguel. I'm Bert Montoya's brother-in-law. I'm calling from Shreverport, Utah, and I have Bert here with me. Judy was confused. She'd never heard of any brother-in-law. She said, I know about Bert's family, and I don't know about any brother-in-law. The man snapped back, quote, Well, you don't know everything. I came to California and picked up Bert on Saturday to bring him home with me. Now he's here with me and my wife. He's going to live with us in Utah. I'm calling because we want you to stop Bert's social security. We're a real proud family, and we don't accept charity. So please stop the checks. Judy needed to hear this from Bert himself, but the man said that Bert was feeling under the weather and couldn't come to the phone. When asked for a home phone number, the man stated, quote, no, uh, we're moving, and we don't have a phone yet. Anyway, my wife is sick. Uh, I have to go now. Goodbye. That same morning, Beth had received a message from the same strange man, and she played the recording back for Judy. The caller said, quote, This is Don Anthony. I mean, Mitchell O'Bregan. Now they had heard three names from one mysterious caller claiming to be the brother-in-law of Bert. Immediately, they phoned Dorothea, who claimed she didn't know a Don Anthony, but could confirm that Bert's brother-in-law had picked him up from her house and driven him to Utah. At this point, it was crystal clear to Judy that something was very wrong. On November 7th, Judy called police and filed a missing person report. Dorothea knew the jig was up. She started to scramble. She called on her loyal tenant, John Sharp, to help her get a story straight with police. John had already seen one man vanish and then smell the air he left behind, and now he was going to be questioned about another. An officer came by the same day, to which Dorothea reassured that the crazy social workers were overreacting. John fed the officer the same lies Dorothea had. When she and the officer disappeared upstairs for a moment, John quickly scribbled a note. Once the officer came back down, John immediately handed him the note when Dorothea was out of sight. It read, She wants me to lie to you. The officer ushered John into a room and turned up the television to drown out their conversation. John said that they couldn't talk there. They would have to meet in private. They left separately and met on the corner of a nearby street. He told the officer everything and he would later relay everything he told the officer to Judy and Beth as well. Judy's boss told them to just let the police do their jobs and quit worrying. It was out of their jurisdiction, and her suspicions of murder were completely absurd. But Judy wasn't going to let this slip under the rug. It was eating away at her. Something wasn't right, and she was tired of sitting around waiting for things to happen. 
she took it upon herself to call a detective, the same detective that interviewed Brenda Trujillo in April, and heard bodies were buried in the garden. In a different interview later, the detective would state he had heard about the bodies in Dorothea's garden as early as January 1988. He told Judy they'd had eyes on 1426 F Street for about a year now, despite not having a case put together at all. After this conversation, Judy called the detective repeatedly to get updates. When he stopped answering, she called his boss and threatened to call a congressman if they didn't get to work on the case. This is apparently what did it for the officers, because on November 11th, Judy was called down to the police headquarters to meet with a detective. There, Dorothea's new parole officer was also waiting to voice concerns that she was breaking her parole by running a boarding house. Police arrived at Dorothea's home at 11 a.m. that same morning. She warmly welcomed them into the home, and after a quick chat, they started their search. They didn't have a warrant, but she gave them permission anyways to dig up her massive garden. The officers were starting to lose hope of finding anything until the fourth hole. Eighteen inches down, an officer hit lime. Lime is a chemical compound and infamously used to speed up the process of decay and lessen the smell of the dead. This myth has reverberated through society for ages, most often spread through movies featuring a murder and someone trying to remove the identity of a body. However, it is in fact a myth. Lime does the complete opposite. It preserves remains, nearly mummifies them. A forensic pathologist would later describe the bodies that they dug up as human jerky. Dorothea had been preserving her victims, not destroying them. The officer dug deeper and eventually hit an object wrapped in cloth and plastic. He tugged at it, fiercely, and after using all his strength, it finally broke loose. Upon close inspection, the officers realized that they had just discovered a human leg bone, and it had probably been attached to a body before they ripped it off. They then put down their shovels and called in the forensics team to carry on the delicate process. A crowd of neighbors, spectators, and reporters formed around Dorothea's death house. Here are some news clippings from that night's coverage. It is in this house at 1426 F Street that 69-year-old Dorothea Puente has lived for many years, renting out rooms mostly to older male pensioners in poor health. When several anonymous tips came to the police that some of those men may have been murdered and then buried under an elaborate garden, police investigated, finding today a leg bone and part of a human foot in one of four excavations. Dorothea Puente was taken in for questioning and then released. Police say they are looking at pension checks that were cashed by former boarders for possible forgeries. Officers are scanning guard at Puente's home all night, though she's not available for comment. Her neighbor, who asked not to be identified, said that in May and September, he and other residents detected a foul odor in the area, one he said smelled like something dead. The smell got so bad that some of the tenants in the building here were complaining about it, and we called the health department to come out and investigate. And did they? They came out, but they didn't find anything. Neighbors of the F Street house described Dorothea Puente as an eccentric but caring person. She's a very good person. She's nice to everyone. Another neighbor had a less flattering description of the reason he called the health department last year. This neighbor wanted to remain anonymous. He said he smelled something funny. 
Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, around the end of May and again the 1st of September, we had extremely bad odors coming from the back here somewhere. We couldn't tell exactly where it was coming from. It's a very nauseous, sweet, rancid odor, almost like a dead body. Police promptly interviewed Dorothea about their findings. She acted shocked and claimed she had no idea about bodies and claimed she had no idea bodies had been buried in her beautiful, well-tended garden. Despite finding human remains, Dorothea was allowed to go home. The digging would resume tomorrow morning. On the morning of November 12th, Dorothea kindly asked the detective if she could stretch her legs and grab a quick cup of coffee down the street. And with that, she walked right into another five days of freedom. Her first destination was Tiny's Lounge, a dive bar in West Sacramento. After three or four vodka drinks, at 10 a.m., she hailed a cab and rode into downtown. From there, a second cab took her to a bus terminal in Stockton, and at 2 p.m., she caught a Greyhound bus to Los Angeles. The next morning, she checked into room 31 at the Royal Viking Motel. The media was having a ball with the fact that police let a suspected serial killer simply walk away from the crime scene. And whilst she was out, they discovered the remains of seven total people. While enjoying her last days of freedom, she became a regular at nearby restaurants. And on November 16th, day five, Dorothea walked one and a half miles to the Monte Carlo Tavern. Today, it's still standing, along with the horseshoe-shaped bar where Dorothea had her last drink. She slid into a stool next to 59-year-old Charles Wilkes before ordering a vodka with orange juice. She introduced herself as Donna Johansson and complained that her heels were starting to fall off from all the walking she'd done. Charles, being the Prince Charming he was, ran the shoes to a repair shop and quickly returned. Dorothea bought him a beer and the couple chatted for over an hour. She told him her husband had recently died, so now she was looking for work and a place to live. She dropped the idea of living with him, cooking him a meal on Thanksgiving, and even increasing his social security benefits. Before splitting off for the night, Charles promised to accompany her while she shopped for clothes the next morning. But something was troubling him. He'd seen her face before, on the news. After returning to his apartment, Charles called CBS News around 8 p.m. An editor showed up with a photo of Dorothea Puente, and together they watched the 9 p.m. news featuring clips of her face. Charles confirmed Dorothea was the woman he planned a date with, and the editor called police. After a brief interview, police knocked on her motel door and asked for identification. She handed her license to the officer. It read, Dorothea Puente Montalvo. At 2.30 a.m., she was put on a private jet charted by Channel 3 News and flown back to Sacramento. Despite the tragedy that had occurred in Dorothea's home, to many, it was a spectacle. As bulldozers ripped open the earth, some took photos and some laughed. A van of tourists came all the way from Japan to see for their very eyes. Someone put a sign up that read, Nightmare on F Street. It was an interesting reaction that probably wouldn't have happened if the victims had been young children or young men and women. If that were the case, these murders probably would have been solved a lot sooner. Because the victims were either elderly, an addict, or mentally disabled, or all of the above, 
Few genuinely cared about their fates. Dorothea had been stealing from the most vulnerable for decades, then made a business out of their murders, despite countless tips to officials. On November 21st, authorities announced the first body to be identified, Ben Fink. Before the confirmation, Ben's brother already knew by the tattoo descriptions released in the papers. The second set of human remains were identified three days later, on Thanksgiving Day, Bert Montoya. In an interview soon after, Bert's nephew told reporters, quote, I heard that she was so kind to my uncle and was good to him. She helped him so much with his low self-esteem. For the tables to turn so abruptly, it just leaves me spellbound. I don't feel hatred. I feel the Lord will take judgment. The next victim to be identified was 64-year-old Vera Martin. In October of 1987, she failed to pick up a birthday gift sent by her son. He searched for his mother for a while, but nothing ever turned up. 64-year-old Dorothy Miller and 63-year-old James Gallup were identified next through fingerprint analysis. Quinte gained more than just another check in the mail when she took the life of Dorothy Miller. She gained a new identity, and she used it to get medication at a Veterans Administration clinic. The same doctor examined both the real Dorothy and the fake one, apparently unaware that they were two different people. When Puente tried to obtain Dalmain, however, the doctor refused. She was prescribed thyroid medication, but Dorothea managed to find another way to get her supply, simply by finding another doctor. The generic name for Dalmain is Florazepam. It's used to treat the symptoms of insomnia and sits in the class of drugs titled sedative slash hypnotics. If one takes too many of these pills, symptoms include extreme drowsiness, confusion, or coma. It's particularly dangerous when consumed with other medications, and especially alcohol. Dorothy only lived on F Street for a couple weeks before she disappeared. A tenant would testify in court that when he asked where she had gone, Puente told him she was sick, had been arrested for shoplifting, and had to stay somewhere else. Presumably, like all seven of the victims, James Gallup fell victim to one of Dorothea's deadly drug cocktails. Another tenant recalled hearing Puente tell James that if she didn't let him handle his money, he'd have to find another place to live. The same tenant recalled James telling him that Dorothea was giving him too much medication and that he had been sleeping all the time. When police released his identification, none of his relatives contacted police. 78-year-old Betty Palmer only lived in the boarding house for a month. She was very sick and emaciated. One tenant believed that she should have been in a hospital. One day, they came home from work, and Betty was gone. Dorothea told him that Betty's daughter came by, picked her up, and took her home. 80-year-old Leona Carpenter was the first body to be found, and the last to be identified. On her wrist, her watch was still ticking. None of her relatives came forward to claim her body. Dorothea's routine was simple. She'd taken people dependent on housing and or care, and when she felt it was right, would make them a deadly cocktail so they'd pass away in their sleep. She hired nonviolent offenders from a halfway house to dig the holes for her, and it's presumed she was the one to dispose of the bodies and toss the dirt back in. A lot of people questioned how a little old lady could move bodies on her own. 
but one tenant claimed he saw her moving 90-pound bags of cement with ease. However, Bert Montoya was 200 pounds. How did she move him? On June 19, 1990, a judge found that there was enough evidence to charge Dorothea Puente with nine counts of murder, but her trial wouldn't officially begin until February of 1993. On August 26th of that year, a jury found her guilty on just three of the nine counts for the murders of Leona Carpenter, Dorothy Miller, and Ben Fink. The jury was hung on the remaining six counts. A month later, the prosecution was aiming for the death penalty, but one of the women testifying didn't want Dorothea Puente to have that fate. It was her daughter, Linda Bloom. Linda and her mother reconnected in 1987 over the phone. Dorothea told her that she was a doctor, but Linda knew that that wasn't true. She thought her mother was just trying to impress her. They met in August of 1988, three months before the world would finally know her mother was a serial killer. In court, she pleaded for her mother's life. Quote, I know that she had a horrendous childhood, was neglected, and let down every step of life and I'm asking the jury to consider life without parole. One of her defense lawyers upheld that her traumatic childhood and lack of mental health counseling heavily contributed to Dorothea's actions, stating that she had, quote, one of the most sad, tragic, pathetic family situations any of us had ever had to deal with, and that as Dorothea housed more tenants, her resentment and nihilism grew. It had to come out somewhere. It came out with all these missing people. That is the bridge between this traumatic past and these horrible crimes. Fantasies and lies are a symptom of a very unhappy, sad person who has a lot of pain inside. They make up a reality in which they're special and they get attention. She cannot handle owning up to any kind of behavior like that. It's just too shameful. In the closing arguments, Dorothea's defense stated, quote, By operation of law, she will suffer the most severe punishment there is. She will die in prison. Please don't take the next step. It's not necessary. You don't have to kill her. We're not trying to excuse her conduct here. We're not trying to convince you you made the wrong decisions. There is no excusing crimes of this magnitude for which she stands convicted. There is still within Dorothea Puente a child of tender age. I've gotten close to her, and I see it. Her lawyer held up a photo for the jury and stated, quote, That little girl standing out in the front of an orphanage is still Dorothea Puente today. In October of 93, a jury deadlocked again, seven in favor of life imprisonment and five in favor of the death penalty. A mistrial was declared, and as a result, Dorothea Montalvo Puente was sentenced to life in prison. She denied killing anyone for the rest of her life, but that didn't stop her from profiting off of her famous conviction. Where there was money to be made, Dorothea followed. In 1988, she started conversing with a publisher, Shane Bugby, and from that, Cooking with a Serial Killer was born in 2004. It featured nearly 60 recipes, interviews, poems, and drawings from Dorothea herself. As of today, her house still stands, with new owners living inside. In 2020, it was featured on Murder House Flip, where the home's renovation was filmed for reality television. 
on March 27, 2011, Dorothea Puente died of natural causes at the Central California Women's Facility. She was 82 years old. Upon hearing the news, the Sacramento County Sheriff stated, quote, She served as a living illustration that one cannot judge a book by its cover, the epitome of evil without a trace of evil appearance. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and welcome to the outro, where I talk about some lighthearted true crime to lift the mood a little bit. But before that, make sure to hit those five little stars on Spotify or iTunes, or if you're feeling extra generous, share the podcast to some friends and family. Heck, send this episode to your grandma and tell her you're thinking about her. Alright, now. There is a 500-pound burglar roaming the streets of South Lake Tahoe in California. He's broken into 28 homes and has yet to be caught. He's big, he's black, he's a freaking bear, and his name is Hank the Tank. Black bears are usually 100 to 300 pounds, but because Hank's been feasting on human food, he is quite literally obese. Police have received over 100 calls and set traps, but Hank is still on the loose. He's lost all fear of humans, but so far, he hasn't hurt a single soul. If people are in the home when Hank breaks in, he doesn't care. All his attention is on their leftover pizza scraps. Although Hank has been quite destructive, the locals have taken a liking to him. They want him out of the neighborhood, but they definitely don't want Hank to be euthanized. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife apparently doesn't care about Hank's fate. So the Bear League has stepped up calling for action and is providing any and all of the money to safely move Hank out of the community. I found a Facebook post by the Bear League, and they're asking people to call the DFW and politely ask them to not kill Hank at 916-358-2900. Emphasis on politely because you'll be talking to a receptionist that doesn't have a say in anything. This method really could work because after someone spray-painted Bear Killer on one of their traps, they quickly took it down. Again, that number is 916-358-9200 to tell DFW to politely not kill the beloved Hank the Tank. That's all for today's episode. I hope you have a good morning, evening, or night. And don't forget to tune in next Tuesday for another episode. Goodbye.